and welcome to another episode of Wealth Planning Illuminated. I am your host, Teresa Marks, a senior wealth strategist at CIBC Private Wealth in the U.S. I am joined today by my colleague, Daniel Blaustein, a certified financial planner at CIBC Private Wealth. In today's episode, Daniel and I will take a look at a variety of factors that can help you determine the best way to approach a Roth conversion for you and your family. This is part two in our two-part series focused on Roth conversions. Okay, let's get started. In our last podcast, we looked at the factors to consider when somebody's thinking about a Roth conversion. And we talked about you know, the income taxes, thinking about the time horizon, the various distribution rules. But I think that there's you know, often a little bit more of a granular part of this, this conversation as well. So Daniel, you know, in your role as a certified financial planner, I know you see this analysis quite a bit for clients and really thinking about, you know, does the Roth conversion make sense for their particular circumstances? So you know, thinking about it from that perspective and in your role as a CFP, what, where should people start kind of on some of those granular pieces of this puzzle? Well, people often are surprised when we put together their financial plan that they've done a great job saving in their IRA and we show them what the projected RMDs are going to be, those required minimum distributions. And they say, whoa, I didn't realize I was going to be having to take that much money out every single year. That's going to put me in a high tax bracket. What are some ways we can work around this? That's really been a common conversation starter around the Roth conversion. And this is where we get into, okay, well, there's options. You know, you can do a conversion all at once. One fell swoop, pay that big tax bill, put the money into this tax-free wrapper moving forward. Or we can look and see, are there, call it gap years in your income, where we can take advantage and do micro conversions every single year and keep your tax bracket low because we're recognizing that income, but start moving these assets from that pre-tax wrapper to that post-tax wrapper, obviously paying taxes along the way. So we often call those what micro conversions, right? Yep. And, and I think that that's one of those important things for people to remember is that a Roth conversion isn't a, a one and done thing. You don't have to do it for all of the account or you can really do it bits and pieces along the way as, as you're suggesting. That's correct. You can be as nimble or as clunky as you want to be. And one <laughs> of the reasons why we run these analyses is because we can see what makes the most sense. And we always look at different time horizons because it might make more sense to do it one way if you're looking 10 years down the road or 15 years down the road or 20 years down the road. So we just try to be mindful mm -hmm. about that as well. Okay. So once somebody has decided to maybe undertake a Roth conversion, whether it's one of, you know, a bigger conversion like we like you mentioned or a micro conversion, what are some of the, you know, kind of considerations or even the risks that somebody should be thinking about as they make that final choice? So the first thing I'll touch on is the liquidity side of the equation. So mm -hmm. you are going to be recognizing income that really isn't income. It's money that's not coming to you to help cover the tax bill, like what we mm -hmm. normally think about when we earn income. So we have to have the liquidity to pay for that tax bill, that tax liability. And you know, some people might want to pay it out of the retirement assets, but generally speaking, it's more beneficial if you have a liquid pot of money outside of your retirement account that you can use to cover the tax implications from those conversions. And then the other thing that you want to be mindful of is, like you said, the risk that's involved in, a, in doing this kind of strategy. So 
you'll hear that it might make more sense during a down market to do a Roth conversion because you're converting less money and therefore your tax liability will be less. Mm -hmm. You're still converting all of your shares for your investments so that when the market rebounds, you get it to grow back. Well, if you're paying the tax liability out of your liquid bucket and it's going to be investments that you have to deplete in order to do that, doing it during a down market can kind of add a double whammy because you're pulling money out to pay the taxes and the rest of that money is still going down. So those are the things that you just have to weigh. You wanna run some stress tests just to make sure that your portfolio is resilient enough to handle these kind of things. But again, that's why micro conversions are really beneficial and our clients tend to like them because it allows you to be nimble and work around certain years like that. So essentially taking smaller bites rather than taking a huge bite and then having a, a potentially a bigger risk with the, with the larger conversion. Correct. Yeah. So. You know, having looked at a lot of these different types of conversions, and again, you know, whether it's a micro conversion or not, and, you know, depending on the client situation, do you kind of have a general rule of thumb of, you know, what the break even point is, you know, from paying those taxes and then ultimately being able to make that up on the, on the Roth side? Great question. And it's really analysis by analysis. That's why we need to look at each person's situation so then we can give them that projected break-even point. But generally speaking, in the analyses that I've run, it can take anywhere from 15 to 20 years for that break-even point to be met. Obviously, if you assume higher returns, then it can speed up that timeline. If you assume more conservative returns, it pushes it back. It also depends on where you're pulling the money from. So it's not just a return of the retirement accounts, but you got to take into consideration the return of the brokerage account that you might be using to pay those mm -hmm. tax bills. So, you know, those kind of things help dictate how long it'll take. Now, if you have a big pool of cash, it's above your rainy day fund, you really aren't using it. It's just kind of asleep well at night. It might seem weird to say, I'm going to take that money and put it towards this tax liability. But those are the ones that I've seen have the shortest time horizons because you're basically pulling a no growth asset, which is cash, mm -hmm. paying that tax liability. And that's where I've seen the time horizon be almost as short as a decade. So it really just depends on what each person's situation is. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think, you know, you know, we laugh a lot of times lawyers say it depends. But I mean, I, I do think, you know, in this situation, so much of it does depend on those various factors that you're talking about. Like, you know, how much are there taxes and how are you paying those taxes? Do you have to generate additional tax to pay the tax if you're, exactly. if you're selling a long-term asset? You know, one thing I think that often goes into that discussion for people really is the estate planning side. Whereas maybe somebody who's older doesn't have as long of a time horizon maybe to hit that break-even point, but they might be doing it for estate planning reasons. So what do you see on the estate planning side when you're running these types of um, analyses? I'm so glad you brought up that point because there's been times where we've run this and really by the time we assume the plan ends, there's no change in asset numbers. You know, It mm -hmm. ends up being about the same level. And then the question becomes, well, what are the kind of assets that you're going to be passing on? And that's when it becomes a much different story. And it really comes down to, I think, how cool have your kids and grandkids been? Do you want to cover the tax bill for them? If they've been really nice, maybe so. And then you're giving them some of the best inheritable assets that they can get. 
If not, and you feel like, well, they can cover the tax bill at their own tax bracket, then that can lead people not to really want to pursue the Roth conversion because at the end of the day, it's not making a big difference in terms of income tax planning for them. So on the estate planning side, it's you know not as much a matter of are you going to break even dollar for dollar, but it's really more you know is part of the inheritance you paying that tax ahead of time. Correct, and then putting it in a tax-free wrapper for your kids to enjoy. So that's mm-hmm. really the the push and pull of these kind of analyses that we run. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times part of that conversation can be you know the tax bracket that the child is in. Um, you know, if you have high-earning children and you, they can avoid paying a thirty-seven percent tax as they're having to pull out that traditional IRA, as opposed to you know maybe a child that has a lower income tax bracket than you do. So I think you know it's not just the factors that go into the account owners tax situation. But I think we often have to look at, you know, the next generation who might inherit that and where they will be from an income tax bracket perspective. That's exactly right. So I think, Daniel, really what you're telling me is that it's all about factors that get, you know, again, kind of not only those factors that we talked with Ryan about in terms of, you know, distribution rules and, you know, time horizon, but here when we're really getting into the granular and, and making that decision and actually kind of flipping the, the conversion switch where we really need to be thinking about, where are those tax dollars coming from? Um, what are the tax brackets we're dealing with? Um, and then, and then all you know again the time horizon. You know what are what are we trying to accomplish? Right? Are we in, you know decreasing the income taxes for the owner or potentially for the successor owner down the road? Thank you for joining us for this episode of Wealth Planning Illuminated. We hope you found this topic interesting and that you will continue to explore the variety of wealth planning topics available to you on this channel. Thank you and have a great day. CIBC Private Wealth Management includes CIBC National Trust Company, CIBC Delaware Trust Company, CIBC Private Wealth Advisors Incorporated, all of which are wholly owned subsidiaries of CIBC Private Wealth Group LLC and the private banking division of CIBC Bank USA. All of these entities are wholly owned subsidiaries of Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce. This document is intended for informational purposes only and the material presented should not be construed as an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any security. Concepts expressed are current as of the date of this publication only may change without notice. Such concepts are the opinions of our investment professionals, many of whom are chartered financial analysts, charter holders, or certified financial planner professionals. Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards Incorporated owns the certification marks CFP and Certified Financial Planner in the U.S. There is no guarantee that these views will come to pass. Past performance does not guarantee future comparable results. The tax information contained herein is general and for informational purposes only. CIBC Private Wealth Management does not provide legal or tax advice, and the information contained herein should only be used in consultation with your legal, accounting, and tax advisors. To the extent that information contained herein is derived from third-party sources, although we believe the sources to be reliable, we cannot guarantee their accuracy. The CIBC logo is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Investment products are not FDIC insured, may lose value, and are not bank guaranteed. 